0: morning, my name is Greg. I am a member of the Longford Center, Longford Center Missional Community. Um, and I want to start today by talking about Duke Ellington. The Duke, as he's known, his real name, I mean, quite a look, right? Uh, his real name is Edward Kennedy Ellington. If you've not heard of him before, he's the Duke of Jazz. Uh, his jazz career started around 1914. And his jazz career ended when he died. He basically worked until his death in 1974. He composed, he played piano, he led bands and orchestras. You might be familiar with one of his lyrics, it Don't Mean a Thing If It Ain't Got That Swing. You've heard that before. That was because of him. Now here's how Duke got to be Duke. When he was young, he moved from Washington, Washington D.C., where he was originally from, He moved to New York City, because that's where the jazz was. New York City was, if you want to be a jazz musician, that's where you have to go. It didn't work out, though. He basically failed, so he moved back to D.C. He got a job painting signs, um, but he kept on working hard, uh, working with his band and working in music. So he worked up uh, the, the gusto and the courage after a few years to move to New York a second time, undaunted. And he worked like crazy when he was there in New York. Uh, He always worked like crazy, actually. He was always looking to listen to other players. Actually, that was kind of one of the things he was known for, was listening to new musicians on the scene. Well, after some years of just kind of grinding it out, he was able to get an audition at the famous Cotton Club. If you're not familiar with that at this time, uh, the Cotton Club was like the place to go to for jazz orchestras. So he got an audition there, which is amazing in itself, and there were loads of other bands auditioning on the same day. But luckily for Duke and his band the manager for the club didn't even get to the auditions until Duke played. So there were six bands that played before Duke Ellington that really were auditioning for nobody cuz the guy who made the decision wasn't even there. But by the time Duke Ellington and his band gets on the stage, uh, the manager comes in, the manager hires him immediately, uh, and then he gets the job at the Cotton Club. And that's how he got to start, and that's not how we made it. That's how we got to start to be able to work hard to finally make it. So it's like a really long process for him. Now he did all of this. I mean, going to New York, failing, coming back to D.C., working hard, going to New York, working like crazy. Like, he did all of that because he trusted that he would make it eventually. He put his trust in his skill. He put his trust in his ability, thinking, yeah, I, if I work hard enough, I will make it eventually. And it worked out for him, but it doesn't work out for the 99% of people who aren't Duke Ellington often. I mean, for every Duke, there are thousands of others who work just as hard. And they might even be just as talented, but they won't see a career like his. So what we trust in can lead to pain or it can lead to redemption. So Duke's trust and his abilities worked out for him for his career. But with someone with less skill or even less luck, their trust, that kind of trust, would lead to pain. It would lead to a failed career. Now these verses in Micah that Elspeth just read, are, they're about what we trust in uh, and something bigger than our, our, our career I mean, what do we trust in with our lives is the real question here. Our hopes, who will deliver our dreams? Who's going to protect us from our fears? Trusting in the wrong place is going to lead to pain. And the right place leads to redemption. So we all have a tendency to trust in the wrong things. It's just kind of, that's what the human condition really means. We have a tendency to put our trust in the wrong places. And that will always lead us down the wrong path. But God's rescue comes in unexpected places. And what we also learn from Micah is that trust in the Lord leads to redemption. And these verses are, uh, that we that we just read um, are coming on the heels of the first part of Micah 4 that Michael preached about last week. And, and Micah 4, the first section, is basically this amazing vision of what, what uh, the future will look like under God's reign. That uh, former instruments of war are being destroyed and refashioned into instruments of... Of, of satisfaction and cultivating the land, and there's all this kind of ultimate rest and satisfaction kind of stuff. It's like this really big out-there image. Now, the second part of chapter 4 that, that we're going to be looking at today is, yeah, but what about now? Like, that's great. Yeah, That sounds really great out there, and, and maybe that's even something I might even believe in and trust in, but now it doesn't really look like that. It's a gr- So we have a grand vision of what the new heavens and earth are going to look like but this is where that grand vision meets reality. What, how does that interact with our day-to-day life? So what, what we first learn from Micah in that, in these verses, is that trust in the world leads to pain. <clears throat> trust in the world leads to pain. So Micah is asking the oppressed people of Israel, and if you have your Bible or your phone, just keep it open. We're going to um, keep on looking at these verses as we go. And in verse 9, like, why do you cry out now? Like, don't you have a king? Or, or what is your king dead? So Micah is kind of asking them, like, why are you crying out? Now he's not only talking about now for the people; he's talking about in the future when outside nations are going to take over Israel, as Micah has been warning people. Um, what's going to happen then when those when those bad times come? The current king that they have is no help at all, and in the future there won't even be a king. There's going to be pain. The personal agony—it's like the personal agony of of giving birth. So Micah is honest with pain. He's not saying, "Oh yeah, times are are hard, but don't think about that. Like keep your keep a smile on, or keep thinking about the bright side or the, the silver lining." He doesn't say, "Don't worry about suffering." He's saying, "This is horrible. Like worry about it. You should really like be worrying about this. Uh, you you shouldn't like keep calm and carry on. You should be crying out, uh, and because their city is going to be destroyed. Like verse eleven, verse eleven says." But now, in the moment, many nations are gathered against you. Multiple nations are gathered up against you, Israel. And these other nations are saying, like, let her, let the city, let the nation be defiled. Let our eyes, as we destroy this nation, gloat over Israel. So pa- And that means Israel's past, Israel's culture, everything they spent their time building up is going to be gone. And, and they themselves are going to be homeless, Verse ten says, um, "You will go to Babylon. uh, For for now, you must leave the city to camp in the open field. You will go to Babylon. So they're going to be stolen away from their home to this other place called Babylon, and they're not even going to have houses. They're going to be camping in out in open fields, in the fields of their enemies. They don't know the language there. They don't know the customs there. Like, are they going to be able to get jobs? How are they they even going to eat? They'll camp as captives in some remote place in an open field." Everything will be taken. This isn't just like a small little blip. This is life-changing. And this is probably like their worst fears realized. Like to the Israelite, what's the worst thing that could happen to you? Well, if Babylon came and stole us away and destroyed everything and took us back to their home, that would probably be the worst thing that could happen. And this is what's going to happen. It's hopeless. And I know from some of you and your stories, you've been in places like these. Or you're currently in places like these. It can feel Hopeless. And Micah's like, look, it's going to be painful. You're going to thrash about. Do it. That's the normal response to pain. But when you do cry out, make it a cry to God to deliver you. When you cry out in your suffering, make it a cry out to God in your suffering. And that, that's what people in suffering, I think, need to hear. That's what I need to hear when I'm in suffering. Not it's going to be better someday, though it might. Maybe it won't. We're not guaranteed anything in this life. What we need to hear is this. It's God is present now in your pain. You don't have to wait for God to be present when things get better. God's present now in your pain. Find him there by wrestling and by crying out. My voice sounds extra manly today just because I have a a cold. Now, um, the full view of how foolish it is for us to trust in the world is on display for us to trust in the things on the wor- of this world. Like what does this world offer? We're never guaranteed peace, we're never guaranteed prosperity, but we will all definitely experience hopelessness. We definitely will experience anxiety. Like that that's a guarantee, that's a given. And at the end of the day, what will the kings of this world really actually give us? What the people of God need to know is that when they cry out, not if, because we will, we will cry out in our pain. We must understand that our cry of pain is a cry of deliverance. It's directed to God to come and redeem all that's broken. Because we have a king who does promise peace and who can actually deliver it. And that's unlike anything else this world can offer. Now, If this world gives us problems, why would we run to this world to fix us? Or why would we put our hopes in this world that gives us the problems to to make those problems go away? The promises of this world leave us in pain. They leave us desperate. So we need something better to look towards. We need something better to rescue us. This is what um, trusting in the world is like. It's like turning on a TV show each night only to find that it's a rerun or that it's not on. I mean, have that ever happened to you where you're like, you get stoked about something, like, oh, it's going to be on. I cannot wait for this. And you get settled. And then it's not on, or it is, and it's a rerun. You're like, you've seen it before. And this is for people who actually like, watch television when it comes on and not through Netflix or whatever, if you're old. <laughs> you know, you might, just, you might get excited. You have some snacks going on, some crisps. You have some wine or a beer. You're like, yeah. And then you're like, oh, what are we going to do now? I don't know. Um, <laughs> a good, horrible example of this is Christina and I love to watch Gogglebox. Judge me all you want, but if you don't watch it, you're completely missing out. It's hilarious. It's wonderful. It's not even a guilty pleasure. It's just a pleasure. And being the highbrow culture vultures that we are, we were ready on a Friday night, not this past one, but the Friday night gone, to watch the newest episode. And we probably had some crisps. We probably had the wine. We had the setting. This is our crazy Friday night because we're insane. We're super exciting people. But as we turned on the television, not only was it not on, Channel 4 wasn't even working. The whole channel wasn't even working. We couldn't even like, watch a rerun of, of Gogglebox to try and you know, solve our souls. It was a horror. And that's like, I mean, it's not like our Friday night was going to be amazing to begin with. We're not getting dressed up, going out on the town, going to watch a gig or something. We were watching Gogglebox, and we couldn't even have that. It was a letdown. And, and that's what trusting in the world is like. You're going to be let down. You're going to be bummed out. You'll be staring at that blank tally, just hoping for something to come on. And then as we're let down, where do we turn? Well, we just tried to find something else on TV. I can't remember exactly what we watched. Um, but we turn to the exact thing that let us down in the first place. We need to lift our eyes to something better. If our trust is in this world, we will expect our jobs to give us meaning that they can't. If our trust is in this world, we're going to expect our families to give us a love that they simply can't. If our trust is in this world, we will be left unsatisfied. And when something goes wrong with our jobs or our families, that means everything is in complete ruin and we're completely undone. Trusting in this world first leads to pain. That doesn't mean that jobs are bad or families are bad. It's good to have passion for your jobs. Obviously, it's good to have passion for your family. It's good to love your partner and love your kids. But if that's the ultimate thing that we hope for, right, those things don't come through for us in the ways that we are demanding, that's just a sad life. We're going to live an unsatisfied, discontented life. But even in our suffering, as we cry out, there is a hint of redemption. Uh, Look at verse 10. it says you will go to babylon the most horrible thing that's going to happen you will go to babylon but there you'll be rescued there the lord will redeem you out of the hand of your enemies the very place that is taking them captive their very enemies that's where god is going to work that's god shows up in the place of pain and he's there to rescue us i mean to fully appreciate the insanity of the statement remember what Babylon symbolized to the Israelite. It was a godless place, like, literally a godless place. It was the people who were going to bring, bring judgment against them in a literal sense. Going to be they were going to be the slave owners. Israelites were going to be the slaves. This is a place where God is going to bring His rescue. Think of the worst place in the world. This is where God is choosing to bring out His redemption. The dirtiest, grimiest part of Manchester. Like, what is that for you? The most rednecky redneck part of America. I can think of a few places. <laughs> Maybe it's your parents' house, like, oh, surely nothing good can come from there. <laughs> or maybe it's Didsbury, you know, how much, how much do you hate? <laughs> maybe it's Charlton. And you know, we walk around Charlton, we're like, why would anyone ever want to ever hear the message of the gospel? Everybody seems to be doing fine. No one seems to care about Jesus. Regardless of how spiritually poor the place or situation might be, this, um, uh, hear this quote from Abraham Kuyper. as a Dutch theologian and prime minister. He said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Every desperate place. And this is the place where God will redeem his people. This is the place where God is going to rescue you. And you see, this is because God's plans are above any that we can create our own. We like to think we have these great curated plans of how our lives are going to look, and then real life happens, and it's completely different in lots of ways. Well, God is more clever than our enemies, and God is stronger than our enemies. There are real enemies out to get us. There's real suffering out there for us, but God's more clever. Verse 12 says, But they do not know, these enemies who are coming against God's people, they don't know the thoughts of the Lord. They don't understand his plan. He who gathers them like sheaves for the threshing floor. These enemies don't know God's thoughts, God's plans. So God uses them for his own purposes. They might be going out thinking that um, they own the world and they have complete control, but the Lord has gathered them like sheaves for the threshing floor. What that means, if you don't have that agricultural background, and I don't, is sheaves were gathered up from fields. Uh, They were thrown into a barn and basically used as a barn floor to be trampled over cattle. Um, which means not only are they trampled, but if a lot of cattle are standing up all the time, you know, it's pretty gross, like the barn floor. Those who seem to have all the power and are set up against us are, are, are really just being used as a floor for a barn. Not the most clean place to be. So God's more clever, but he's also stronger. He's got the brains and he's got the brawn. Verse 10 says, there you go to Babylon, there you'll be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you out of the hand of your enemies. God's people are in the hand of these enemies. We could be in so deep that we're in the hand of our enemies, and yet the Lord is going to rescue us even from there because he's stronger than them. He has more strength than anything any enemy can throw at us. And maybe the question now is like, well, what kind of enemies are we talking about? In Micah's time, it was clearly these outside nations that are going to take us over, a very literal kind of enemy. But for us in our time, what are the enemies in your life? anxiety, worry, fear, suffering, all those kind of things. All of those potential doom in the future. Brexit kind of brings up all of our kind of fears no matter like, this, what is the world gonna be like for us, for our kids? All of those enemies have nothing on God's plan. So that's trust in the world. Trust in the Lord leads to redemption. So this Lord who's more clever... And stronger than anything else out there, this is the one we want to trust in. So, and trust really is, is a precious commodity that commodity that we have. It really ought to be guarded and reserved for really whatever might be worthy. But trust in the Lord, I think we're going to find, is worth it. And it leads us to redemption. Verse 13 says, uh, "'Rise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will give you horns of iron, I'll give you hooves of bronze, and you will break to pieces many nations. You'll devote their ill-gotten gains to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of all the earth.'" what in the world does this mean? Hooves of bronze, like, yeah, hooves of bronze. That's what I always wanted. I'm so glad I get them. Like, what's the world going on? What's going on here? Well, let's get into it. First off, remember where we are in in this context. We're a desperate, hopeless kind of people. And God is saying he's gonna come and rescue his people. And those who trust in the Lord are going to experience his redemption. So first we're told to thresh. And we already talked um, about uh, the sheaves being trampled. This is what threshing is. So the, sh- the sheaves are brought out from the field, the floor for the barn. The cattle are threshing those sheaves by trampling, basically grinding it to nothing, grinding it to dust. And who's doing that threshing? Here it's not God. It's his people. God is, is, is commanding his people to rise and to trample on our enemies. God's people are carrying it out, and they're pulverized. Now here, the big metaphor is God people, God's people as cows. They're not just kind of normal cows, but like supernatural, crazy cows. Um, and we don't do this in our own power. It's through the Lord who has this power. So let's talk about maybe some of the symbols that are going on here. So we're rising and we're threshing. God is the one who gives us horns of iron. Now, horns symbolize power. That's, um, it symbolizes strength. And iron is something obvious. It's hardened. it's strong. It's not brittle. Hooves of bronze, as, as we get in the other part of uh, the verse there. Strong, you need strong hooves if you're going to grind down those enemies to nothing. So even our feet are strong and our horns are strong. Uh, and what is going to happen there going to break to pieces many nations, break to pieces all of our enemies, grind them to dust, and there'll be nothing left. The enemies and everything they make will be destroyed. And God uses his people in that process. One commentator said this is, reminded him of an image of like a strong Amazonian woman. I think that's great. I think maybe go a little bit further and think like, this is like Wonder Woman. This is, this is our image here. We are Wonder Woman. The church is Wonder Woman. Superhuman, it's according to Wikipedia, so if you are a uh, superhero expert, feel free to correct me later. Or don't, because I really don't care that much. Um, <laughs> superhuman, <laughs> this is according to Wikipedia, Wick, what Wonder Woman has. Superhuman strength and durability—that's good for battles. She has the power of flight because she can glide on air pockets. Apparently, I did not know that. Uh, superhuman speed, reflexes, and agility. She has enhanced senses; so she can smell, I guess, crazy ways. Vision and hearing. Uh, she, she was apparently she was created by Zeus, so that's why she has these superhuman qualities that are associated with other Greek gods, uh, like Artemis, for example, also gave her superhuman empathy to be able to empathize with others, which is not something that you often see in very many superheroes. So just like how the Greek gods gave Wonder Woman her superpowers, God has given his people, those who were slaves in this chapter, those who were homeless in this chapter, who were completely left to nothing, God has given his people supernatural powers, Those who didn't have direction, those who didn't have jobs. He's giving them this superhuman power to be able to rise and thresh. Now in real life, the only way normal real life people can be superheroes is through God's supernatural power working through us. And of course that means it's not up to us. It's not up to us to choose who our enemies are. It's God telling us who our enemies are. It's not up to us to work in our power to destroy those people who we think are our enemies. It's relying on God to work through us. Now, as, as um, maybe interesting as that image of Wonder Woman might be, I mean, do we really feel like that most of the time? Probably not. Monday morning, am I like, yes, I have hooves of bronze. Like, no, I'm like barely making it as Colin's like throwing stuff at my face. Christina knows. I mean, we are, and, and really in all of our lives, we're in enemy territory. And we have enemies set against us. Anxiety, worry, loneliness, fear. Those are just some of the enemies set against us, like spiritual apathy. That's, how horrible is that? And by ourselves, we truly are helpless. We're left homeless to just camp out as slaves to our enemies. We don't have the ability to get anywhere else, and we live in enemy territory, but the Lord comes to us. We are too helpless to come to him on our own. He has to come to us. So the Lord doesn't remove us from Babylon and then save us, He doesn't say, okay, first get yourself good and then come and see me. Clean yourself up a little bit, get your act ready and then come and see me. No, he goes to where we are there in Babylon. He doesn't expect us to leave Babylon first. He comes to our rescue. He finds us right where we are. He enters our world. And though it might be a bit esoteric, this is also the idea behind our logo as a church. Which I don't think... We 've ever talked about, the idea of this, uh, this red slashes coming through, breaking into our world in all these multiple kind of areas, as we look towards, that, towards um, the heavens for help. God is active in our world and in more places than we realize, he's, he's coming down into our Babylon, as we look to Him, we surrender to him, and we can live by a power beyond our own. The Lord has broken into our world, and He tells us to rise. and after we rise. What, is God's, what do God's people do with their victory? Let's look at the end of verse 13. It says, you will devote their ill-gotten gains to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. So these people have won all these things from their enemies, and what do they do with it? They don't keep it for themselves. They give it back to God. They were once writhing, and they were told to writhe, but now they rise, and they devote everything to the Lord. Unless our enemies or or everything our enemies have taken from us, all the rest that your anxiety has stolen, all the time that your addictions have carried off, every part of peace that was embezzled by your worry, everything the enemy has tried to take from us, all our dignity, all our wholeness, all of it will be taken back and we get to devote it to the Lord. We might be fighting, but it's the Lord's battle. It's him working through us, and he always wins. That means we're redeemed, but for a purpose beyond ourselves, for a purpose beyond just feeling good about life. Of course, we get that as we get to be connected to Jesus, but for something far bigger than that. Because our new freedom from being made whole in Jesus means we get to devote that freedom to him. Our new sense of peace that we get from Jesus, that's devoted to him. Our new life, all that we are in Jesus, we devote our life to him. Our life is his. He's bought it. And so we speak Jesus' words to people, and we make space to allow others to experience God's family. We use our new life to be a part of other people to experience that same thing. I mean, we're all up against the same enemies. We're all part of the same human family. For those of us who get to also be part of God's family, we have a mission before us. If we've found the rescue that we need, surely we want others to experience that rescue. So being devoted to God means being devoted to his mission, rescue in unexpected places. So if we aren't talking about Jesus with others, we really just aren't living a full Christian life. We aren't getting to experience the loveliness of that full Christian life. If we aren't inviting fellow members of our human family into God's family, we're missing out on the Christian life. And the reason we do this isn't because we're amazing and passionate or or whatever. Maybe those things might be true. The reason we do this is God has called each one of you to be part of what he's doing right now. It is God at work through you bringing rescue to unexpected places. How unexpected for God himself to use us as his primary mode of mission. That's ridiculous. Why would he choose to do that? God's rescue comes in unexpected places. And when Jesus came to earth, he came in a completely unexpected way. I mean, when we went through Mark earlier in the autumn, and we're going to pick up the rest of Mark uh, this coming autumn, uh, the main kind of theme was uh, Jesus as the surprising king. He came in a way that not very many people expected. He came from a backwater town. He wasn't a military leader. He didn't overthrow the government. He wasn't like the other religious leaders. He went to unexpected places. He ate with the broken, so the religious leaders hated him for that. Jesus came from a place that nobody expected. He came in a way that nobody expected. The unexpected Jesus still works in that same way. And Jesus on the cross, he writhed in agony. He writhed in agony, not just because of the physical torture of the cross, but because of taking on our brokenness, our sins. He took on all our enemies, because we were enemies. But he didn't just stay there on the cross, because Christ trampled over death. He trampled over everything that holds us back from being fully alive. He trampled over our sins, and now they're dust, completely pulverized. Our past holds no power over us anymore. They are ground to nothing. Because when Christ won the victory, he devoted all his gains to us. And now, if Jesus' life is your life, you don't stay writhing in the past because that's not where Jesus is. On Friday, there was agony, but on Sunday, Jesus rose and he threshed. He resurrected himself and is now alive, is now at work through us, before us, ahead of us. And if Jesus' life is our life, we get the same, we get the same new life. A wholeness that this world simply cannot offer. If Jesus' life is our life, then his cry of death on the cross becomes our cry of life today. The people in Micah's time will have to go through suffering to be rescued. Their suffering was necessary to be part of God's rescue. But God had a bigger plan at work, one that this story kind of points a picture to or is a small illustration of. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit together had a plan of rescue in place before the world was even created, before we were around, before Micah's time. And in an act of unexpected love, the Father would send his Son to earth. The Son would submit to his Father in doing it, knowing that he loved and trusted the Father, and he was obedient, and he came to earth. Now, part of that plan was to reveal who he was as Jesus, as the Son of God, to people who needed his rescue. Another part of that plan was for him to die. And he did. The sun was broken, and he died, pulverizing all of our death along with it. It was a messy death. The sun also bled and poured out his life so that we might have life. But the sun did rise three days later, and he went to heaven, and is now at the place of power, ruling even over this very moment, over our lives, every single moment, making everything new on earth as it is in heaven. And within this plan, the Spirit is now at work in the church, sending the church to unexpected places to proclaim the love of the sun. And this table is for anyone who is united to his son. Anyone who follows Jesus, who trusts in God, for anyone who rejects trusting in this world and trusting in the Lord, you don't need to be a member of Redeemer, but uh, you do have to be a member of God's family because if you don't trust Jesus, we don't want you to do something that you don't believe in with your body. Um, This could, though, be an opportunity to think of what life could be like if you did because maybe this sounds a bit too good to be true, but what if it was true? Now, for all of us who are united to Jesus, he has gone through suffering that we will never experience. We will never experience death because Jesus experienced that death for us. Not in the same way. We will never have to bear the burden of our failures, of our sins, everything that we've messed up. We just don't. He already bore them for us. Jesus' suffering on the cross was necessary for us to be included in his rescue. Now, that doesn't mean we're never going to suffer. But Jesus' resurrection means now we have a new way to not just survive, but to thrive in this world of suffering. So... If we have a different life, Jesus' life, we live differently. We aren't powerless before our enemies, but we tread over them. All that seeks to cut us down, to cut us back, withhold us from being humans fully alive, through the resurrection and only through Jesus' resurrection, now we have a power to live differently. When worry comes in, know that through Jesus, you don't have to writhe. You can rise. When anxiety attempts to come in, we can rise When we have the fear of sharing this great message with others, we don't have to have the fear of shrinking back. We can rise and ask God to work through us. And that's what it means to trust in the Lord. Let me pray. Jesus, as we come to you as broken people, um, we all have our own different parts of suffering that we will cry out in. And Lord, you know we will all experience more as we live through this life. Lord, I pray as we live through this world that is not yet finished, is not yet made new. Lord, give us the, uh, the faith to be able to trust in you, to cry out to you. And Lord, even in those times of suffering, Lord, we pray that you would uh, give us the words, uh, give us uh, the power to live differently. Lord, let us not be powerless before our enemies, but let us put that trust in you, knowing that you have created us a new creation, one that is now, will, will never has to experience being held back by everything that's said against us. God, allow us to live in that such a way because we know it's true. Allow us to take hold more of that truth as we see more of you, as we continue to live this life you've called us to live. We pray in your name, amen. And Sorry, in a moment, I'll just give instructions. Uh, I didn't do that before. In a moment, we're gonna stand and sing as Mike was just about to say. Michael was just about to say. Um, As we sing the songs, uh, um, if you trust in Jesus, uh, come up to the table. And take a piece of the bread and dip it in the wine as we sing together. Uh, And actually, let me pray for the table before we start. Lord, we thank you that we get to um, do an act that even the act itself expresses faith. Lord, as much as we depend on food and drink for us to survive, Lord, we are saying we depend on you even more uh, to work through us. Otherwise, we're, we're sunk. So, Lord, we pray that um, this act that we do together would be a metaphor of what our lives really ought to be as we live the rest of this week out, Monday through Saturday, we pray in your name. Amen.